You're listening to Reflections on Now, a podcast brought to you by City Church Tulsa, in which Pastor Matt Nelson and artist Cody Jensen look at cultural events and everyday life through the gospel lens of love. For more information on City Church, visit citychurchtulsa.com. A few weeks ago at City Church, we asked the congregation to submit questions or thoughts, just reasons of why you're walking away from faith or what what are these questions of doubts that you are having and we collected way too many to discuss on a Sunday morning and way too many to discuss in one podcast but wanted to actually discuss some of these thoughts and questions because there were so many that came in and so many that related to each other I think one of the biggest themes that we want to start with is really just the the disappointment or the mistrust in the where the church is, is and is heading. And I think that has been showcased to so many people by the response through COVID and fuel being added to the fire of the social justice movement and the general lowercase c church response seemingly being crickets. And I feel like there's a lot of us who are sitting in the seats of churches feeling as though what 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 are we going to do and why aren't you talking about it and so a few of the questions that came in or the responses that came in were about that and not having a safe place to struggle so i guess let's talk on that first and just what led the church to becoming this place where people who are struggling to find meaning of life are now told that it's wrong to struggle to find the meaning of life i think that Man, this whole topic, it's its hard because whenever you're dealing with the church, it's so multifaceted and it's so large that what happens is we narrow it down to our experiences and what we've gone through with the church and the inevitability that you're going to be disappointed at some level. Like I've been full-time ministry now for 14, 15 years, and I just tell people, I'm going to disappoint you at some point that you're going to want me to respond in a way probably where I won't you know, meet your expectation. So that's difficult. And then no one ever asked me in my life, hey, what's the reason that you would walk away from the church or your faith? That just wasn't asked. Like, we are not comfortable in that space because, you know, faith and belief is the removal of doubt, as so we say. So we never created these safe places for people to struggle well. I want to struggle well. I I tell our people all the time, it's not if you struggle, it's how. And so struggle well, lean in. Instead of feeling like you have to go outside of this community because struggling within community is way too messy. Well, messy is what you get. Like that's life. That's wrestling with faith. That's, that's theology. And now we're just, we live in a time of like certitudes. You know, it's just, it's frustrating to me because instead of creating open places for us to dialogue about the non-essentials of our faith, we just kind of feel like we have to do it outside community. Right. That's sad to me. Yeah. I, I like I really do mourn that, like that we're living in that world right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting how we we feel as though faith can't uh, coincide with doubt. Whenever the definition of faith, you have to have doubt, because faith is in something that is unknowable. If it's knowable, then it's not faith. It's just knowing. Yeah, yeah. I think I I, I when I look in scripture, it's not like doubt is celebrated, but like what we realize is God always gives us space for that doubt. 
And you have to you have to move through that in order to find something authentic. You can't just arrive at authentic faith without some struggle. And I think you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the first century, and they created these spaces, like these synagogues. You see this in Acts, you know, 17 and in the Areopagus in Athens, where it was they're wrestling with what they believe. That's just that was life. There was numerous rabbis, there were Jewish teachings, there was oral law. And so what you did is you wrestled. And the implications of what does this mean for me? What does it look like? Where do I fall on this? Where what teachings do I wanna do I, I feel like are authoritative for my life? What does the kingdom look like? And now we just come to the table with our certitudes. We throw them out there. It's black or white. Believe it or don't. Leave it or take it. And I'm like, that's just not how your faith works. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, now I, then I know I, I'd shared this a couple of weeks ago, a recent Barna study said, you know, where do you go whenever you struggle with doubt? And it was like less than 20% goes to the community of faith. That's sad. Less than 20%, do you think that's because, I'm sure it's a myriad of factors, but that they don't feel it's safe to go to those people or that it seems like the world is more attractive to find those answers? I think it's probably a little bit of both, but mostly is we just haven't created those safe places. Mm -hmm. Like you're supposed to come to church with your belief and your faith and you're supposed to confess. And there are, there's a part of that. I think part of the traditional liturgies of our faith is that we confess sometimes when we don't believe. We come to the table even in our struggle, but I don't think we've created a place for us to be honest. Mm. And that's what I think people are looking for. They need, he's just saying, yeah, I really have an issue with this. Or I'm looking and saying, why is the church responding like this or not responding like this? And we feel like we have to wrestle with that outside of the community of faith. But I think we were designed to wrestle with it with each other. That's what you see all throughout scripture and the infancy of the gospel going forth in the first couple centuries. That's where it, that's where it happened. Like you went, you came together and you wrestled mm-hmm. with your theology and the implications of the gospel. And uh, I'd love to see those places reemerge, you know, in the, in the right. church today. Do you think that this inability to struggle well is the root of the Protestant Catholic split and then to the Protestant split and then to the thousands and thousands of church splits that have followed and continue to happen is that the root of not being able to truly struggle well with each other through doubt and faith? I think we could probably trace it back to some of that. I mean, this is church history and we could be here for hours, mm-hmm. but if you go back to Sola Scriptura and, and, and the Reformation and Luther, there there was a tendency from that point to now go to Scripture and eliminate some of the questioning mm-hmm. and the wrestling because now the word of God is the final authoritative voice, which do I believe it's authoritative? I do. Do I believe that that means we don't wrestle through the implications? No. Mm-hmm. Like you have to wrestle with some of it. And there are, I mean, how did the church historically interpret this? What do we feel like the spirit of God is saying through this? There's so many facets, you know, what does reason tell us about this? There's different things that we bring to, to the text in order to properly interpret it. And now it's just like, I'll just read it and take it for what it says. And there again, there's no wrestling. So one of the responses that came in specifically asked that question that we could spend hours on, but maybe just as short as possible, we could answer. They mentioned they struggled with the inerrancy of Scripture because whenever they read the Scripture, it seems to be full of errors based on contradictions of itself. How do you hold both of those at the same time and call it inerrant? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I grew up... The inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture is just something that you believed. 
and, and honestly, this is a great conversation. Some of my conservative friends who are probably listening to this, you're not going to like this response, but that's okay. I'd love to have this conversation with you because as my faith has grown, what I realized is, you know, you have this unknowable, infinite God in scripture who is being described and, and transferred to us through very uh, limited human people. So that does not make scripture less authoritative. But we have to take that into account when we read scripture. And so sometimes when we don't take certain things literal, people are like, well, you have a low view of scripture. I actually think you have a higher view of scripture whenever you're able to wrestle through these discrepancies, whenever you're able to realize, okay, in the Old Testament, when they're describing who God is, they're seeing God through their lens. And their lens is a warrior culture Mm -hmm. where you wiped out people groups. Mm -hmm. Now, did God actually say that? I don't know. And, and, you know, some of you just turned it off right now, but, you know, this is the reality of wrestling with, you know, the human element. And what we have to do is take the whole of scripture. What is God trying to do from Genesis to Revelation? That's what we build our theology, our worldview on. And then we wrestle with these implications and these smaller discrepancies and the things that don't tend to line up. You don't just dismiss or argue away, but you have to lean into it and 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 realize, okay, does this reflect what we know to be the truth of who God is? Mm-hmm. And remember, the clearest image of who God is is always going to be the life and teaching of Jesus. So, you know, we it doesn't mean the Old Testament is is <laughs> is not authoritative. It doesn't mean we don't doesn't don't go there, but it's a veiled image of what ultimately is revealed through the life of Jesus. You want to know what God looks like, look at the life of Jesus. It's going to be the closest picture we get. Whenever I began kind of that journey of of thinking because I like you was raised in a church environment in which the Bible was a literal interpretation. It's infallible. But within the last few years, one of the first kind of thing that my mind started wrestling through was if it was inerrant, we wouldn't need four accounts of the gospel. We would only need one. But we have four different human perspectives of the same story to let us know that those stories match. Yes. And they don't match perfectly. Right. Yeah, it's it's like you have four different camera angles on the same story. So you get to see it from a different perspective and you realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them have a different purpose for writing. So Matthew, this Jewish audience that that Jesus is the new Moses. Mark, this immediacy of getting Jesus to Jerusalem and this discipleship. Luke is, is, is to a Gentile audience and talking about prayer and women. John is just totally different than all of them and is focusing on you know the, the glory of Jesus. And it's, it's amazing because, yeah, you, you, you look at this and, and it's beautiful because here we are getting this like full 360 view of the life of Jesus. And some of the stories take certain elements away and add certain elements to give us again this fuller picture. So, so many of us get caught up on the instance or the one story or this discrepancy and we miss the whole. Mm-hmm. That's what's frustrating to me is it's we don't have to allow the, the, the little things, the small things to keep us from missing the big picture of who God is. That's what you build your foundation on. Uh, that's what you build your theology on, not one scripture. <laughs> you know, I, I think like you have John on the island of Patmos who receives this dream and revelation, this apocalyptic literature, like apocalyptic literature is weird and it's crazy and it's hard to interpret it because interpret it you have to see it through the lens of the first century, through the suffering they're enduring, and then also the application of, of where we're at today. So to take it everything literally or at face value is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, So here we are today, 2,000 years later, and we're trying to interpret Revelation 
for current events. And we think that, you know, if we take this vaccine, it's going to be the mark of the beast and, and you know, stupid things like that that mm-hmm. just show you how far our theology has, has come whenever you want to take everything literal, whenever you approach the text to try to find answers that aren't actually there, you know, things like that. Right. Um, and we can go through, there's a lot of ways of seeing scripture, but you're exactly right. There are some people that literally think a flashing bolt of lightning comes down and the text writes itself. No. The Old Testament is oral traditions, that stories that have been told so many times that eventually somebody writes them down. Have you ever played the telephone game? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that does that makes people uncomfortable. Right. But that's what's happening. Right. You know, the, the Pentateuch is... Is, is is these oral tradition stories been told so much people attribute it to Moses, but there's no doubt that there were numerous writers that are telling these stories and eventually someone's like, hey, we should probably write this down. Yeah. You know? I think uh, something that illustrates this and uh, this, I'm going to use political um, example, but it's not in a political leaning. It just, it happened recently. Joe Biden was attacked for lying essentially, or that he was fact-checked and, you know, all of these things were um, not quite accurate he was being interviewed and the interviewer was questioning him on this and said well isn't the devil in the details he said the devil is in the details if you are working towards a goal in the future but the devil is not in the details if you're telling a story to illustrate a purpose to illustrate a point because the whole the story as a whole is what illustrates the point and you are getting caught up on a minor detail that has nothing to do with what the heart of what i'm trying to say and that's scripture. If you understand the whole, you get the heart of what it's trying to say, where it's trying to lead you to, where it's trying to lead the world to. But if you get caught up in like Paul, you know, specifically writing that uh, a woman shouldn't speak in church and not understanding the context of how you read it and, and why you read it, I think is as matters as much as reading it itself. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think if you approach the text just to try to find answers and like a science book where you're trying to navigate and figuring it out, it removes the beauty and the mystery and, and the relational aspect of scripture and its ability to speak into our lives. And so is there a place for apologetics and you know theological discovery? Absolutely. But what I would tell someone like this is at some point you have to approach the text as an instrument that God uses to speak to us to reveal himself to us. The word of God is living. It, it is. It's it's active. It's something that you approach in, in a meditative way, in a contemplative way, and you allow the word of God and, and the psalmist. I mean, if you're, if you're struggling with the church or doubt or your faith, man, go to the Psalms, go to the wisdom literature, go to Ecclesiastes, where it's just raw lament and prayer. And I think you'll find similar voice to what you're experiencing because they didn't hold back. You know, and then you go to the life of Jesus and and what is the heart behind what Jesus is saying? And, you know, you don't have to go to Leviticus. You don't have to go to the book of Joshua where, where people are being wiped out. And, you know, again, what is God trying to do? You have to take the whole of scripture. It doesn't mean that Joshua doesn't have value to us or we can't take take certain things from it. But going to the scripture and approaching saying, man, what, what do I feel like God may be speaking through this? So. Yeah, this is going to be very biased because of I am an artist and I see the world through my lens of being an artist. But I think that artists, poets, philosophers, saints, the people that have found this mysterious thing of the universe, there is God that we call it as Christians. Um, Other people call it other things. But there is this mystery of the universe that is ineffable. It is the inability to put into words what you experience in your soul. All art is trying to tell people who have not experienced that place 
what it's like to experience that place without the ability to truly be able to communicate it. And that's the Bible as well. It's a group of people who are all trying to lead you into a place that is undescribable. All of these things are just humans trying to communicate to other humans about something that is uncommunicatable. Yeah, and some of us, if you grew up in a more fundamental background, prevalent in the Midwest and the South, that sort of thinking is not celebrated. And so some of us have some baggage that we bring into it and we think to ourselves, but I was told to believe this and do this because that space where we allow God to speak and move and express himself through art, we we suppressed that, right? That's one of the things that, honestly, if we want to go back to the Reformation, art and the mystery and these symbolic action of, of the Catholic liturgies and symbolism, it was thrown out. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was it was too Catholic. What we always do is swing the pendulum mm-hmm. to the other extreme. So we lost this beauty and mystery uh, of the arts, and we didn't call it spiritual because it didn't communicate clearly enough what we felt like needed to be communicated. Mm-hmm. It's like you know now it's like pray the sinner's prayer, repeat this after me. Well, that's not that's not God's ultimate desire for you. Mm-hmm. It's not transactional. It's entering into this beautiful mystery of relationship. And so what I love is in, in this postmodern world, now much of that is being restored. And we understand the beauty of symbolism and, and bringing that back into worship and allowing art to speak to us. Like art can sometimes speak and reveal aspects of God's glory that words just can't, can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the music, the art, the, the poetry, things like that are beautiful expressions of, of how God moves in us. So within that and this part of the country we we are living in and we were grow, we raised and grew up in and we are surrounded by people that are very similar to that who all have this baggage. And some of the responses that came in, like how do so many churches spend their money or fall to focus on social justice issues? Or I've been a part of a church split and I've seen church leaders do ungodly things. I've received some horrible advice from a pastor, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, and other abuse by church leaders. Those are heavy within a one specific church. But then we have a whole sect of people holding signs, calling themselves God-fearing Christian Americans who are not standing up for true love. They're standing up for what they want to do, calling it godly. And it's so easy for most of us to see, but it's hard to separate God from those who claim to be followers of God. So how do we do that? Do you have any advice for any of us to how to do that? Or is it even possible? Those are serious things that you can't just sweep under the rug and and just move on and act like they don't. When you experience something like that from a church leader, from a church, when you see that, what, what I try to help people do consistently is, number one, our foundation is never in a church, a leader, or another person. That will ultimately fail you at some point. But then at, at the same time, establishing proper expectations for what the church is and what it isn't. Like, it is a messy family where we struggle. And you cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater. You can't dismiss everything because of one person or experience. And I always say this to people, if you want to be a part of the solution— and the reformation of what the church should be, you have to lean in and show the world a better way. You can't disengage, stand on the outside, and then critique the church. It just doesn't work like that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be the church. You're going to be some representation of it, whether you're standing on the outside or inside. 
So what I want to do is say, hey, you know what? There are times where we have to critique ourselves and look and say, you know what? As a whole, we've missed it. We've done this. Like we're spending our money more in the entertainment business over here than we are um, forming people into the image of Jesus. Or we've done this or that, or we are not standing up for injustice like we should. You know, th- there are times for that, but then you you have to change it from the inside and be a part of that movement to say, I'm not going to allow these people on the outside who are not a representation of Jesus to win. I, that's how I even see it. Like mm-hmm. when we disengage, we allow them to dictate what the church should be. No, mm-hmm. no, we're going to reform it. We're going to be the most authentic representation. And remember, throughout the centuries, we're no different. The church has gone through multiple reformations, multiple issues and struggles, and the authentic church eventually does prevail. The gospel will prevail. The essentials of our faith will will proceed. And our job is to hold on to those and, and to help point a, a better way forward. I think another aspect within putting our spiritual leaders on these pedestals is that we are outsourcing our becoming. As believers— We are all supposed to be on individual journeys of becoming like Christ, but we're looking to someone else to give us all the steps to, you know, here's what I need to do this week in order to become, you know, the person of God, the person of love. And we're outsourcing all of our responsibility of becoming the person that we're supposed to become. And as we have learned and become conditioned to do that, we've now added this entire misinformation age of there are people, smart people in our churches who are believing propaganda that is being sent to them on social media about end times mark of the beast being put into a vaccine for a a, a disease that we're trying to cure worldwide. That sounds so stupid and so silly, but I am not them. I haven't gone through the steps in their mind that got them to the point where this seems real. They, they may have been outsourcing their becoming to another figure and not actually learning how to struggle well, how to discern in their own life information that they are being sent through the lens of love in the gospel and who God is, and just a lens of skepticism of information. And I don't know how to fix that. I don't even know what the question is. All I know is that it feels to me that we're, we're missing one huge aspect of what it means to be a Christ follower, and that is a personal journey. I would actually go beyond that. Okay. I think what it reveals is that we are actually failing to walk out our faith in community as we were designed. Mm-hmm. There is a personal journey aspect of it. We tend to overemphasize that today because we're wired to be individualistic. What you saw all throughout scripture is a communal journey of faith and this accountability and wrestling. And what happens in the wrestling is that you end up preserving what is orthodox and true and right because the community of faith brings these numerous aspects. And so when someone comes to the table and they're like, hey, I'm really worried about this vaccine because, you know, it could be the mark of the beast. What happens? Someone would stop and say, hey, let's go back and let's properly interpret what Revelation was about and what it's not about. It's not about predicting events. You don't need to be worried about the mark of the beast right now. 
That's not what this vaccine is. And this community aspect of this allows you to walk this narrow road. What you have today is you have certain spiritual leaders that we listen to, and then we have our echo chambers and just the voices we want to hear. Mm -hmm. You don't have any of this wrestling. That's what's actually really frustrating to me is because if you are going to struggle well, let me just tell you what, what step number one, you have to go find other people who are committed to struggling well, and you have to live in community with them where you can struggle together, where you can ask the real questions and you're not going to be dismissed, not when someone's going to try to slap you with the truth. Because it's not, again, if you struggle, it's when. Mm -hmm. And then you look around and you're like, okay, I'm struggling. Do I have somebody that's here? If not, I'm going to go to other voices and I'm going to believe anything. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's this is revealing how isolated we truly are. Mm -hmm. And I think technology has done that. Right. It's isolated us from the wrestling. It's isolated us from the struggle with each other. Because you can't struggle. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you can. You can You can correct me. I don't think you can struggle well through technological means mm -hmm. without seeing somebody and talking with someone and hearing their perspective and feeling empathy and seeing their face. And like, right. it's just not the same. Right. You have a tendency to want to jump towards conclusions and the end result instead of struggle. Mm -hmm. The reason we are in all of this stuff is because people can't understand that they are not living in reality they're living in a crafted reality that a machine is pulling them into and i don't think anything that we are saying right now ultimately will matter if people do not understand that they have to struggle outside of social media yeah that's true wendell berry a poet and philosopher says that in the near future he sees that the struggle will come between those who wish to remain human and those who wish to be machines. That sounds like some insane dystopian, but we are choosing to be machines right now by choosing to never separate ourselves from our phone. Walk out of your house without your phone. I dare you. you it's, it's uncomfortable. You feel lost because we are becoming part machine. And the problem is not that we have these tools that help us struggle well and these tools that help us find true and valuable information so that we can all come together into a vast unity of humanity. These technologies, because they were built with an economic system in mind to extract our wealth and to specifically create income for the CEOs of these companies and the shareholders of which have bought into them, it is never for us. It is never for the embetterment of who we are. The reason is for us to buy things. It's to create imperceptible change in our behavior so that they can profit. And if we do not recognize that, the reason I'm talking about this in the middle of a spiritual discussion is because we have to recognize that in order to become spiritual people. Hmm. Because we cannot become spiritual people if we are programmed to pick up our phone at every single moment that our mind is idle or in the middle of your struggle mm -hmm. yeah only this scenario I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this this scenario what what creates more lasting change you go finding the perfect response quote posting it on every social media or you finding three people who think different from you inviting them to a place together and saying i would love to learn from you Mm -hmm. which place is transforming? I think most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, say that place of face-to-face -face interaction where I'm learning and there is a wrestling is transformative, but that's not where we go. 
That's not our response because that requires another level of humility and sacrifice. So we would rather just go, honestly, sometimes to the people that we know, we know there's going to be certain people that are going to pat us on the back, no matter what you say. I had a pastor friend that posted the dumbest thing about mental health last night. It's like depression is really just in your head. And it's, I'm like, you have got to be kidding with me. And now everybody's like patting him on the back. You're like, mm. amen, brother. I mean, come on. That's the worst advice ever, mm-hmm. you know? But that's what we do. Like we go to those places and think that we're bringing about some sort of transformation and change because it's it's hard to do the other. Right. Uh, another thing that I see in in that is that maybe that uh, spiritual and church leaders are scared to jump into the idea that mental health is real because that would maybe have to admit that they were a part of the problem. Hmm. And yeah. to be part of the solution, you may have to admit that we were doing things wrong that was causing people anxiety and depression and deterioration of mental health. And now we have to change who we are because to admit that those things are real is to admit that we are part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the background I grew up in, we love certitudes. There's a spiritual equation to every issue in life. And when you feel like you don't have that answer, then you're either going to make one up or you're going to avoid the topic. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening right now. You have spiritual leaders making up stuff about you know stuff's not a good enough word yeah <laughs> but and then, then you, you have people who just want to avoid it and act like it's not an issue because honestly i, I don't know anything about it and i'm supposed to know everything right. so you know you have you know you're speaking out of ignorance or just you know misinformed uninformed type stuff so you're usually asking the questions mm-hmm. and moderating this but i'm, I'm going to switch with you because you and i have journeyed together mm-hmm. for quite some time and I, I feel like one thing i've done is watched you struggle well so some major deconstruction when I met you. Mm-hmm. When I first met you, you were ticked at the church. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't want much to do with it. In fact, we were starting a church in City Church and you were like, no thanks. Right. You came on board. I've watched over the last few years, God do some major reconstruction in your life. And so when I look at someone who has struggled well from a practical standpoint, mm-hmm. I think you have. Thank you. So Maybe as we end today, there's some people who are like, I, w- I want to struggle well. I'm struggling with some of these things in my faith, my doubt, other people, the church, hypocrisy, politics, whatever it may be. What, what do you feel like are maybe one or two just practical things that you said, you know, in the midst of my deconstruction or reconstruction, in the midst of my struggle, here's one thing I held on to, or here's one thing that um, I tethered myself to that made, that made a difference? I don't know if there's an easy answer, period, let alone like in my own life, but we met 12, 13 years ago. I've been struggling ever since, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a quick journey. Mm-hmm. I was deconstructing when we started city church, I moved into accepting that my hurt was from one church and that isn't a reflection of who God is. I lived a life of a mental, a cerebral faith and just learning and like taking in and deconstructing I grew up in a small town in a small church with basically just the most legalistic fundament, you know, fundamental like version of Christianity that not quite that there is, but pretty close. And so a lot of my struggle and a lot of my journey in the beginning was mostly just unlearning all of the untruths about God. And I mean, that took a long time because there were so many. I mean, I grew up in it. So there was just things that maybe seven years in that uh, I would hear you say or I would read in a book and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes way more sense. I can't like I hadn't updated that opinion yet. I watched a comedian recently that I, I really enjoyed the way that he put that is 
sometimes we have these opinions that we formed when we were 16 and we don't realize that we haven't updated that opinion yet until it comes up way later because mm-hmm. there was no reason to think about it. And then so something happens and your brain searches and goes, do we have an opinion about that? Ding, found it. And then you say it and you're like, oh, wow, I don't believe that anymore. I'm gonna have to think about that. I'm gonna have to like process because that's not definitely not who I am. Definitely not what I think. Why do I think that? I was taught that. Oh my gosh, that's interesting. What do I believe now? What are people saying now? I mean, like these are, it is mostly, if I have any piece of advice, it would be never stop asking questions. Hmm. There is never a question that is too big for God. There are questions that are too big for other people around you. Absolutely. There are questions that are too big even for the church that you go to maybe. But there's no no question that that would lead God to not loving you. No question that would lead you even away from God, because I think that question is in some way the struggle. It is it is the working through in your own mind who you believe God is. The first piece of advice really would be just to ask questions. Never stop asking questions until the day you die. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's so good, and you know. Here it is, maybe 11, 12 years since I've kind of walked with you on this journey and seeing you go from hurt, kind of this fundamental legalistic background, I don't really want to be a part of it, honestly, today, till you're still a work in progress, but a faith that is full of beauty and mystery and wonder, uh, excitement, and that's been 11, 12 years. And I think there's probably people listening to this that say, I want to struggle well, mm-hmm. and I want that. One thing I've seen in you is I think on this highway of faith that we're driving down, there's exits every mile. And you can take an exit for a number of reasons. You can look at the world around us and say, I cannot justify being a part of a church who would agree with that. I'm going to exit. I saw a leader do ungodly things. I'm going to exit. I'm struggling with my faith and reconciling the goodness of God and the suffering around me. I'm going to exit. And one thing I saw you do is you just kept going down the highway. And I think there is something about continuing to journey into the unknowns, into the struggle, that sometimes today we feel like the only way to reconcile or to get through it is to exit. And what I mean exit, I mean kind of abandon, mm-hmm. to, to completely walk away instead of struggling through. And when I look at your life, I see you struggling through and you tethered yourselves to, to some really good communities of faith and people. And, and here we are still in development, still asking questions, still struggling, but struggling at a much better place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is no piece of advice I can give you except for to keep going, because ultimately the only reason I'm here is by the grace of God, because I believe that there is, are moments in life and there are moments in faith where we go through enlightenments and awakenings and revelations. And I do not believe that you can learn your way into those. I believe that your effort is absolutely a part of it. But for some reason in the mystery of the universe, you can be gifted a revelation of God with absolutely no prerequisites, or you can struggle for your whole life trying to find the answer and never get it. So I don't think there is a step-by-step other than just keep going. And for me, the reason that I keep going is because I have faith that God is love. But faith is the result of me believing something that I've been told. You tell me, that God is love. And I say, that sounds really true. I I think I'll believe that. Now I have faith in that. Whenever I experience it, that's whenever it turns into belief. 
the faith turns to belief through experience. And I only have the experience because I stayed on the highway and I kept having the experiences. Or God wanted me to have the experiences. I have no idea. I don't even know if God's real, let alone if he gave me the experience. But these are the things that I choose to believe because I've experienced it. And the only way that I've found to explain my experiences is through scripture, is through reading Christian mystics and and these people who have journeyed hundreds of years before me, writing down exactly what I've gone through, right? writing down my most intimate thoughts. And I'm like, oh, hmm. this is something. I feel very heard by this person who wrote this in 1846. <laughs> right. I thought I may have been going insane because my mind was doing something that was so out of the context of Western Christianity that if I was to lay out everything I believe right now, you wouldn't even call me a Christian. But yeah, I- I've experienced that it. That is the beauty of the spiritual formation, spiritual mystics, is if you have not read them, the struggle— and what you just described is really the word revelation. At some point, when you continue to lean into this space, that in God's infinite wisdom and timing and sovereignty, that there's a there's a level of revelation, and it happens at different times, different places, in different ways. You know, I think if most people studied the end of Mother Teresa's life, they would be astounded by the level of doubt that she had when she passed away. Mm-hmm. Right now, did she let go of the rope? I think in her in in the readings, you, you would say no. Were her, were her struggle real? Yes. She saw such brokenness that she began at the end of her life, after everything she'd experienced, began to really wrestle with the goodness of God because of the destruction and devastation that she witnessed. And you begin to read that and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. Other really, really giants of the faith have gone through seasons where, you know, I, I just preached the other day on, on John the Baptist, who's literally like, his faith is eroding in prison as he's waiting for like something to happen and nothing happens. Like he's beheaded as he's waiting, mm-hmm. you know, he's like asking Jesus, are you the one? Should we wait for another one? Like he already knew that he was at some point and now his faith is eroding. That's part of it. I think, you know, as you begin to some sort of walk away and, and deconstruct that, that God meets you, mm-hmm. I say, you know, on the road to Emmaus, that God meets you and he'll walk away with you to bring you, to bring you back. And, yeah. You know, I see that in some of your story and, and so many people's stories, if if they continue just to walk down the road, like that's such a big part of this journey is just not letting go. I'm glad you brought up Mother Teresa because Mother Teresa's quote of whenever she was being interviewed towards the end of her life and they asked her, whenever you pray, what are you praying? Like, what are you saying? And she says, I, I don't say anything. I listen. Hmm. What is God saying? God doesn't say anything. He listens. And that's the truth like at this point in my faith that is prayer it is sitting and listening as god listens and as nonsensical as that sounds until you experience the joy peace patience kindness gentleness humbleness and goodness and the self-control that comes out of just sitting in the presence of god listening as he listens then you will just live a life of faith and not a life of belief. Yeah, absolutely. Now you have to wrestle with your being and becoming to be able to sit in a space and just listen. It's not that even all the questions and doubts have necessarily gone away. It's that they're no longer front and center. Like it's almost like you're saying, okay, God, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to sit in this space 
and I'm going to allow you in relationship to transform the things that I struggle with and struggle through. And I think that's the spiritual formation process of it that you cannot simply find through academic or reason or just pursuit of knowledge that will leave you leave you lacking. I think God reveals himself in relationship, in the unknown, in the mystery, in the wrestling. That's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. In my journey of questioning, I had to go through a process before I got to where I am now of deconstructing every single thing that I choose to do because of the way that I was raised, because of the societal pressures of which I've grown up in, because of who I was built to be by America, who I was built to be by Oklahoma, who I was built to be by my family of origin. All of those things created a version of Cody that is not the version of Cody that I truly am in my core because we all are shaped by our environment. I my philosophy is that we have to deconstruct not only our spiritual life, but our entire life. Deconstruct everything you know until you know why you know it. That is my journey. Taking everything I know and then figuring out why I know it. And until I know why I know it, I don't do anything. I can't think of an example in my life that I do. I take action without knowing why I'm taking action. The reason I bring that up is because whenever you start deconstructing faith, especially in a culture very much ingrained into one specific expression of faith, you will find a lot of pushback because the pushback is pushing against their identity. Their identity is built in something that you are coming to believe may not even be truth, let alone your identity. Mm. And whenever you start to share that with others, you're going to meet a lot of contention and you're going to have struggles with these people and you're going to feel like you're wrong because nobody else sees it because nobody else is putting in the work to see it and i had got to the point where i found all the whys i needed i suppose to come to the waking up one day and saying i'm over the fear of christians the fear of judgment is gone i no longer fear other people. I no longer fear Christians and I no longer fear judgment. And then finally got to the point where I'm no longer scared of my own thoughts. Hmm. I used to be scared of my own thoughts because I thought that if I listened to those, I would lead me into sin. Yeah. See, that understanding that so many have is like God is so small and so fragile. And it's almost like anything like that of leaning into the struggle somehow makes it fall apart. And I think that's where we've been led astray instead of understanding that leaning into some of that not only builds your faith, it grows you. There's something revealing and revelatory and that happens in that as you lean into it. I, I don't make a ton of book recommendations on here, but Ian Morgan Crone wrote a book called Chasing Francis. It is a book I read every year. It is the story of a megachurch pastor who somewhat loses his faith, deconstructs, and in the midst of this journey finds something that he didn't expect. And I so deeply resonate with that book because the story that you just told Mm -hmm. and a lot of my own story I find in these pages. Afterwards, a lot of people will look and say, oh, he's walked away. And if you ask the pastor in the book, he would probably say, no, I I discovered something I never knew, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's kind of part of this journey. And I, I, the reason we even have this podcast is because these are, this is two young guys who found something that seemingly only old people find right and we want to share it with as many people as possible because there is nothing greater than living in the kingdom of god now 
that's what we believe. If you're a Christian and you're listening to this, that is what we believe. There's yeah. nothing greater than living in the kingdom of God now. And we have struggled for decades, come out on the other side and found the peace that has been written for centuries. And it's all about surrender and yes. Yes. giving up the egoic layer that you operate your life through each and every single day. And it is the most painful thing to kill who you are, to become who God designed you to be. But on the other side of that, you won't miss yourself. That's right. I, I think it's beautiful. If anything to take away from this, just I think it does have to start with surrender. I think there's a part of throwing your hands up and confessing your inability and how you do fall short that somehow opens your soul up now to experience something more mm -hmm. than what you have in the past. So, Yeah. I read a poem from Mary Oliver and her collection of poems called Devotions. And I think that this one is a perfect way to end. Um, it really encapsulates what I am trying to say. Uh, and it's called The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole world began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save.